You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, uh, everybody, uh, distinguished guests, uh, friends, colleagues. It's lovely to welcome so many of you here this evening on a rather greasy uh, uh, evening after all, so it's really lovely. And also to welcome uh, those of you who are joining us online. We're live streaming uh, the Behind the Headlines this evening. Uh, so we're delighted that you're here, um, and we're joined by a very distinguished uh, panel of speakers um, together, and they're bringing together very diverse viewpoints from across the humanities and uh, beyond. My name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. And for those of you who don't know about the hub, it's this lovely building behind me, just over in front, uh, uh, in Fellow Square, just near the long room. And in the hub, we do three things. We celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities. We promote multi and interdisciplinarity. So conversations across disciplines, and you're gonna get a real flavor of that uh, this evening. And the final thing we do in the hub is public humanities. Uh, We really believe it's important to take the learning of the arts and humanities to the widest possible audiences. And obviously events like this are very much part of our public uh, humanities events. Um, This discussion forum now is pretty well established. And I guess some of you are regulars. I certainly recognize some of the faces. Um, But in these uh, uh, discussion panels, we want to focus on topics either being uh, uh, debated by the media or uh, that are relevant um, to our times. And what we want to do is apply the rich uh, long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities and to provide a space for respectful discourse that embraces uh, nuance and uh, tries to counteract uh, simplification. So tonight uh, we're doing this in collaboration with Columbia University. Uh, You may be aware that Trinity has just started a wonderful new uh, undergraduate dual degree program uh, with Columbia. Any students in the audience on that program? I asked this morning at 9.30, and but I know we've had a a really wonderful uh, symposium all day, and some of the students did come to that. But it's also in partnership uh, with the Society of Fellows uh, and Heyman Centre for Humanities uh, 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 Research. And Eileen Galuli was, oh, there she is, right in the front row, my counterpart from Columbia. It's lovely that Eileen and colleagues can be with us uh, uh, this evening. Um, You'll see black leaflets, maybe you won't, they've all gone, uh, 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 basically our discussions. Uh, We've been talking all day about the crises of democracy and uh, uh, cultural uh, trauma. And as I say, it's been a very rich uh, conversation. And tonight, we're going to continue the conversation. We're looking at the rise of populist authoritarian movements around the world. And we're asking why these approaches uh, to government hold more appeal than the status quo. So why this? Why, Why now? And it could not be a more timely moment. Uh, Obviously, we had our own election, our own presidential election, uh, only last uh, week. And we, I think for some of us, it was a bit of a shock to see that we in Ireland, who are sort of holding ourselves up to be a sort of a bastion of civility, that in fact, we're not immune uh, from uh, this populist uh, uh, rhetoric. Um, And obviously, uh, Brexit uh, and all of that entails uh, is uh, on our, literally on our border Uh, And here we are tonight, it's the eve of the midterm elections in the United States. Uh, Barack Obama said yesterday it's probably, you know, one of, well, the most important election uh, uh, of, what was it, Uh, of our lifetime, I think he said, actually. And certainly Joe Biden was saying it's for the soul of America. Anyway, it's a hugely important uh, uh, election and no doubt we'll be coming back to it uh, and hear, especially from our colleagues from Colombia. Um... We've been in these fora looking at uh, a number of issues uh, uh, over the past few years. So the fact we're turning to populism uh, and strongman leadership uh, won't uh, surprise anybody. But the truth is the crisis of democracy is just one of the great problems of the modern world, one of the great challenges of the modern world. And we're deeply worried about what's going on, especially uh, in uh, Western Europe, but also uh, 
in a country like India. Look what happened in Brazil only last week. It's, it's a global uh, uh, issue. Anyway, I'm going to introduce our panel, as I always do. I'll introduce them in the order in which they're going to speak. Uh, so our first speaker tonight is uh, Rosemary Byrne, who's uh, in our law school. Uh, Rosemary um, is a phenomenal colleague who uh, will argue that while Europe has constructed the most extensive uh, fundamental rights system in the world, its fault lines have uh, rapidly been exposed by the rise of populism. Uh, she's a former uh, Human Rights Commissioner uh, for the Irish Human Rights Commission and has chaired the Scientific Committee of the EU Fundamental uh, Rights Agency. Uh, so it's terrific that we can kick off with Rosemary. We'll then follow with Bill Emmett. So Bill Emmett is um, the former editor-in-chief of The Economist. Uh, and tonight he's going to look at the Italian case of uh, democratic stress, the recent elections of two anti-establishment parties. And he'll explain how this uh, shock has been a long time coming. Uh, Bill was recently um, a visiting fellow at All Souls. Uh, he's an honorary fellow at Magdalen College in Oxford. And I'm really delighted to say that Bill is going to be taking over as the chair of the Trinity Long Room Hub uh, uh, Governance Board. So it's lovely to be able to, to welcome Bill here this evening. He's just back from Japan, literally this morning. So, uh, uh, Bill, you're very, very good to, to come out. Um, and obviously, I, I bring this book partly because I'm in the middle of reading it, uh, but it's Bill's latest book, uh, The Fate of the West. So we, it's highly appropriate that you're here this evening. By the way, it's an absolutely fabulous read. Um, but he's also uh, been um, the author of two uh, important documentaries that you may uh, uh, have seen, one about Italy called, and I love this, Girlfriend in a Coma, and he's also the executive producer of uh, the great European uh, disaster movie, um, both of which have been shown on the BBC and which we're actually hoping to show in the hub uh, in uh, uh, the spring. Our third speaker tonight is Mariana Hirsch, uh, who joins us from Columbia University, where she is the William Peterfield Trent Professor of English and Comparative Literature and Director of Columbia's uh, Centre for the Study of Social uh, Difference. And tonight, Mariana will look at statelessness as a means through which we can think beyond the constraints of nations and nationalism, arguing that art practices can help us imagine alternative relationships between uh, uh, contemporary subjects, citizenship and uh, home. Uh, Mariana is a hugely, hugely uh, distinguished uh, uh, scholar. Uh, she has looked particularly at memories of violence across generations, combining feminist theory with memory studies in global uh, perspective and uh, she's the former president of the Modern Language Association of America and a, a fellow, former fellow of the American Academy of Arts and, no she's not former, she is a fellow of the American uh, Academy of Arts and Sciences. Last but not least is Bruce Shapiro. Again, uh, Bruce joins us uh, from Columbia University. He's the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia. And he'll explore how authoritarian uh, populism is at once uh, powered by news media, uh, but also threatens independent journalism, uh, asking how journalists can navigate this global tide of uh, polarization. Uh, he's an award-winning uh, reporter uh, on human rights, criminal justice, and, and politics, um, and uh, he contributes uh, to uh, contributing editor at The Nation um, and a U.S. correspondent for uh, Late Night Live on the uh, Australian Broadcasting Corporation's national uh, radio national. The time difference there, Bruce, must be interesting. Anyway, many many other uh, accolades. And obviously, as journalists are under attack at the moment, particularly in the United States, um, I think it's just terrific. Actually, we have two journalists here this evening, um, obviously Bill uh, 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 and Bruce. We hope that you will be able to join the conversation tonight, as you always do at these events. Um, uh, there'll be uh, plenty of time for uh, discussions and answers. The format, you know, is nine minutes. And we're very strict about the nine minutes in behind the headlines. So each speaker has nine minutes to allow time uh, for um, uh, discussion, debate, questions. 
Um, uh, we'd ask you to switch off your mobile phones in the sense, but feel free to tweet, use the hashtag, or put them on silent. That's the correct instruction. Don't switch them off, because we'd love you to join the conversation online as well and tweet using the hashtag HubMatters. Uh, we uh, will be podcasting this evening as well as live streaming it. So if you want to listen to it tomorrow or share it with somebody else, that would be great. Um, I also just want to acknowledge the support of the John Pollard Foundation because the, thanks to the John Pollard Foundation, uh, this series has been endowed and it really is terrific to have uh, their support. So uh, now, if I could invite you to join me in welcoming our first speaker this evening, uh, Rosemary. Good evening. Uh, thank you uh, for coming this evening. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, as I was arriving and preparing uh, my thoughts, I was wondering why we didn't do this 10 years ago. And that's perhaps because Jane indeed wasn't around in, in the Long Room Hub uh, at that stage to galvanize everybody with the energy that, that she invests so wonderfully. Uh, but if you look at the beginning of this year, of 2018, the Freedom House Report came out showing that 71 states within the world were in a state of democratic decline. And this was the 12th consecutive year that they were reporting large-scale declines in the respect for fundamental civil and political rights that are part of democratic life. So what we're talking about tonight isn't something that has arrived instantaneously on the stage. We've been watching the corrosion on a global level for some time. And when you think about Ireland as we're sort of comfortably cosseted uh, on the fringes of the European Union, at least geographically, and also feeling ourselves in, any, in many ways fundamentally American uh, in terms of the extent to which we follow American news, uh, we'll be watching the elections uh, with great passion tomorrow night. Uh, what I want to highlight is that although we're talking about democracy in crisis, we need to be careful about the terminology. And then if our American colleagues go back to America uh, on Wednesday morning and they're confronted uh, with thousands of triumphant red uh, baseball caps, they may be deeply disappointed, I'm presuming that, they may be disappointed, but that does not make a crisis. A crisis, if we think about democracy, is about constitutional democracy, it's about checks and balances, it's about pluralism. It's about really maintaining a civic space so that actually vibrant political participation is possible. But what is important about being European, and I think uh, we'll hear later about the context of Italy, is that it's not only the theater in America, which may in many ways, uh, as constitutional scholars argue, may not constitute a constitutional crisis in democracy. It may be a prelude to that. But when you're actually talking about a democratic crisis, you're talking about the dismantling of constitutional structures. And that's what we're really seeing in Hungary and in Poland. And that's where the crisis really is actually in our home terrain as a member state uh, within the European Union. That aside from the rise of populism and many developments uh, across the European Union. And I think what's important is that the, the, the discussion of the crises of democracy and the extent to which we also think about cultural trauma. The way in which we approach democracy within the European Union is very closely linked to the experience of the Second World War because the Human Rights Convention, the European Convention on Human Rights from 1950, is based upon the experience of what gave rise to the Nazi uh, ascendancy which effectively was perceived as the erosion of civil and political rights. So when we talk about democracy in the European context, and now what we think is unthinkable in terms of its demise that we're witnessing uh, at close hand, we think about it in the context of the core civil and political rights. But what is happening has given rise to a lexicon of new terms related to democracy, or perhaps old ones, uh, depending upon the time period. But we're now relatively accustomed to talking about the demise of democracy, the death, somewhat more optimistic, optimistically, constitutional rot of democracy, if you don't want to call it a crisis, 
or indeed a more cheerful uh, resolution is to consider it merely a recession in democracy. But what's important to remember as Europeans is that actually what's happening within Europe now, and particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, is particularly profound because when you think about the project of enlarging the European Union in 2004, when we included 10 new states, what was going on in that accession process is perhaps the most ambitious democracy building process in world history. And I think I can say that even around historians uh, because I don't think anybody but continental lawyers could have thought up the idea of the key. And the key that had to be transposed into Central and Eastern Europe, if you're looking at it now, we're talking at over 100,000 European instruments and documents that encapsulate the, the entire body of European law. So the idea for these relatively uh, newly independent states that had broken away from the influence of the former Soviet Union was not very long after they were being absorbed into the far more benign and positive system of the European Union. And the way in which this system worked, and it's most efficient, it was logical, was that democracy and the changes in the domestic legal systems were bartered. It was conditional upon membership within the European Union. And to a certain extent, if you want to look at the current crisis in migration, part of that European acquis that was bartered entailed obligations that benefited the old member states far more than the new member states in terms of loading responsibility for the assessment of asylum claims and uh, ostensibly for the long-term residency of those claimants, successful or not, because deportation rates tend to be low. It's not surprising that populism that found as its enemy the migrant uh, that attacked the elite and external interference in domestic affairs would end up seizing on the moment of the refugee crisis as a real rallying call to exploit uh, the, the vulnerabilities of local populations and, and to gain votes. Uh, so I think what's happening in Europe as Europeans should concern all of us because ultimately this was a project to build democracy that was very different from the kind of which the Americans were exporting through aid and diplomacy. And it was a project that back in the era, if you think of kind of the romantic vision of liberal democracy after the fall of the Berlin Wall, back in that time period, there was no effective contingency plan because it was unthinkable uh, that we would watch the kind of decline of democracy and closure of civil society space uh, that we're seeing in, the, in what was then the new member states. Uh, that we're left with a very clunky system that contains only uh, uh, effectively the nuclear option. Uh, so that the limitations of the European system were partly uh, bred from the emphasis on civil and political rights and also from this technocratic legal approach to building democracy. You require states to import your laws. Uh, you send over civil servants uh, to advise them on how this is done. You give some funding to civil society organizations. Uh, but this dull technocratic process was fundamentally bureaucratic. It was revolutionary, but it was bureaucratic. And we're now seeing the limitations in terms of the extent to which it succeeded in creating the broader values of democracy that have been quickly discarded. And if you listen to Viktor Orban, when he talks about democracy, he explicitly states that it's distinct from the methods and principles of liberals organ uh, that organize liberal societies. So our model that we have exported and effectively bartered in the process of accession has been reformed, deformed, some would argue, uh, and ultimately uh, rebranded. Uh, so I'll end with my uh, great timekeeper there in front of me uh, by saying that when we look at the American elections, we should also remind ourselves that what's happening in Europe is very significant. And as European citizens, we have a responsibility 
to follow that and to indeed learn from the lessons of what was a great pilot project in exporting democracy. But as we see those undercurrents are in the West, as they are uh, in the East, and I think we'll, we'll hear about what's happening uh, in Italy next. Bill. Thank you. Indeed, I'm going to follow on very strongly and directly from Rosemary's wonderful broad introduction. Um, and I'm delighted to be here in any case, by the way, and delighted to be uh, able to play a role at the Long Room Hub uh, in the future. What I'm going to focus on is a case study of what um, uh, Rosemary was talking about, which is Italy. Uh, why Italy? Well, there are several reasons. One is that in March, um, Italy became the country in Europe in which populism, in Western Europe rather, in which populist stroke nationalist solutions actually had a huge impact. Namely, it formed a government after uh, an election, winning more than half of, of, of the uh, seats in, in parliament. Uh, and now that populist nationalist government of two parties um, has uh, support um, in the opinion polls of more than 60% of the population. As Rosemary rightly said, if that's a crisis of democracy, then we must be looking at, the, look, looking at it in the wrong words. This is a triumph of democracy in many ways. Um, and that's what I'm going to try to explore. Why am I talking about Italy? Well, actually because um, 17 years ago, in 2001, Italy elected um, the great populist um, uh, innovator of Western European politics, uh, a man called Silvio Berlusconi. Um, to uh, be prime minister, in fact, for the second time, but then to dominate uh, government in Italy for the, for the ensuing um, uh, eight years. He um, was Donald Trump before Donald Trump um, <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Uh, and why could I get interested in him? Well, when I was at The Economist, we did a, did a big inve investigation of him. We... Um, said some disobliging things on the eve of the election, saying he was unfit uh, to run the country. Uh, and his response uh, was to uh, point out the well-known fact that The Economist magazine is um, a bunch of communists. Um, uh, and his newspaper, Il Giornale, or his family's newspaper, Il Giornale, proved this fact by putting um, my picture on the front page uh, and pointing out that I look like Lenin. <laughs> So you see a revolutionary uh, figure stands before you um, <laughs> seeking to overthrow the constitution of uh, a country. So come forward 17 years and you've got um, another uh, populist um, uh, government uh, in Italy, another government that it's hard for outsiders to understand since none of us could work out why on earth Italians elected Silvio Berlusconi repeatedly um, uh, and uh, why he was so successful. Um, in doing that, since he seemed such a, a shamefully vulgar and, uh, and um, actually in many ways incompetent uh, prime, prime minister. But here we are. We have uh, a coalition of the five-star movement, a movement formed by um, former comedian Beppe Grillo only uh, nine years ago, um, with a sort of left-wing origin, but which has transversal appeal, and the League... Uh, formerly the Northern League, a separatist mo movement, but is basically right-wing, uh, anti-immigrant, has really uh, run um, on the basis of immigration as its issue, and is now on a collision course with the European Union um, over its budget, essentially over rules, over um, the nature of the European Union as a rules-based order, um, run by unelected officials, as um, people in my country, uh, say repeatedly uh, as they're, when they're arguing for Brexit, um, and uh, that um, will feature, I think, as the crisis, or at least as the collision course uh, develops, it will feature frequent references to the fact that the government in Italy has been elected, that the government in Italy has 60% support, that the government in Italy is surely much more legitimate than um, the rules of the European Union agreed to, though they were by democratically elected governments. 
So we have um, the successful case of, of populist electoral tactics in Italy. The question is, um, why is it happening and what might it lead to? I think in many ways we should see this as a, as a, a possible triumph of democracy, but all triumphs, all sort of democratic answers um, are generally reactions to previous failure, because that's the essence of democracy. You kick out the other lot and you replace, uh, and are never guaranteed to produce uh, good answers. So why um, have we come to this particular answer uh, now in Italy? The answer to that, I think, is very, are two very long-term uh, forces. One is uh, simple long-term economic decline. Italy is one of the few countries of uh, the Eurozone that, um, whose GDP remains below the level it was before um, the global financial crisis in 2008, household incomes, have been depressed throughout that period, and the country's been suffering um, essentially a brain drain, an emigration, uh, the absolute reverse of the historic emigration of uh, relatively poor and under uneducated people 100 years ago. Now the emigration is of uh, basically graduates um, going to Paris, New York, London, uh, and Berlin, uh, and has a, a, a system of... Uh, running the economy now in which the young essentially have precarious short-term uh, contracts uh, and are unable um, to really form uh, um, families to get mortgages or all of those things. So that's the economic story. But then the question is, why, given that this is a long-term economic story, why hasn't it been solved before? Why didn't Silvio Berlusconi do something? Uh, why haven't uh, other solutions gone there? Uh, to solve it, and I think that the, the right answer to that uh, question is that Italy has a rigidity in uh, its way of thinking about politics that goes back to a deep left-right divide that really originates back in, uh, in, in, under Mussolini, but certainly was entrenched uh, during and after the Second World War, then found its, uh, its uh, terrible expression in the 1970s in what were called the years of lead uh, when um, around 3,000 people died in various forms of political violence uh, of a, a left-right nature. That f had followed um, a long period of politics in which the, the quite powerful Communist Party were deliberately excluded from uh, mainstream politics from, from government, but also in which uh, conflicts over, over uh, um, strikes and uh, over labor issues became incredibly fierce and violent, uh, culminating in massive strikes around in the early 1970s. The result of that, in turn, was a solution, essentially, of um, spending money to try to buy people off, a digging in behind entrenched rights, particularly a workers' statute that was uh, introduced in 1970, but also um, other rights, and an unwillingness to find any ways to bridge uh, divides. The reason why Italy is now famous for having a huge debt um, who, uh, of 130% of GDP is because so much money was spent during the 1970s and 80s trying to buy off opposition. So the Italian crisis that has led to the uh, phenomenon we have today is one of rigidity, of a failure to bridge the gap between the different parts of Italian society that's led to a sclerosis of institutions and then to a solution in March of the election of a, of a, of a coalition which essentially bridges the gap in a possibly implausible but certainly spectacular way. Will it succeed in reforming the country? Will it succeed in bridging this gap? We'll see. Thanks a lot. Good evening. 
Thank you so much uh, for this invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here. My topic tonight is the crisis we are calling statelessness, migration, refugeehood. And my question is, what can art do? And I'm essentially going to talk about hmm, two art projects. Am I pointing it in the wrong direction? OK, thank you. Maybe you'll help me? OK. Um, so what we're seeing on the screen is seven figures who attempt to move from left to right, but they're immobilized, they're pulled backward, they're hunched over under the weight of the objects that they carry. And we see here not just uprooted trees, but houses, household objects, windmills, entire villages. Though the momentum points forward, they're slowed by a burden that they cannot seem to shed. They're the victims of expulsion. They're refugees who are stalled, they're immobilized, by a weight, the weight of the past that they carry. They're in a stateless state of suspension, one might say, much like the ever-increasing number of stateless people across the world whose lives are unbearable, even as their fates are uncertain. But how can this work, how can other works of art like it, enable us to understand or even to address statelessness, its daily textures and affects? What can art do in the face of statelessness as a crisis of democracy. Um, Mirta Kupfermink, the artist of this work, is the daughter of Holocaust survivors from Hungary and Czechoslovakia. She was born and raised in their refuge in Argentina at a moment when uh, continual authoritarian repression and economic crises occasioned further exile. In Kupfermink's iconography, Uprooted trees signify removal from home and a violent break in community and continuity in gen of genealogy and generation. Absorbing nourishment from the soil, trees contain the knowledge of the past and carried into the future. But as you might imagine, if uh, trees are uprooted for too long, they will die and they can obliterate generations of history and memory. And yet, when the work is animated, as you see here in an 11-minute video version, and you're only going to see a couple of minutes, but it's available on Vimeo, and it's called En Camino, On the Road. So when the work is animated, something else happens here. Um, and I'm sorry you can't see the whole thing tonight. Carrying suitcases and bags and trees and other objects, these animated figures seem freer. They're more playful. They're more whimsical. They, um, be, they morph into hybrid mythic creatures. They morph into Hebrew letters. They float into and out of books and pages. They walk up and down a ruler. They emerge from a coat pocket. Hebrew letters multiply. Torahs walk forwards and backwards. Despite their seemingly unrooted freedom from gravity, however, these characters do remain trapped in the pages and the repeated gestures of an ancient Jewish scenario of expulsion and exile a story that is written about, for, and against them. And yet, while the original etching evokes memory as an overwhelming, as a paralyzing burden, the video is animated by a kind of surreal humor and incongruity. Here, the artist grants her characters shapes that can be arranged and rearranged, thus mobilizing multiple potential histories on the threshold of what I see as more open-ended futures. And I'd like to suggest that as viewers, we're invited to share in this potentiality. You see the whimsical whimsy here. That we're um, invited possibly also to reimagine statelessness, citizenship, belonging, and home. So despite the horrendous conditions of loss and negation that we're currently witnessing in refugees communities all, all over the world right now, I want to suggest, and I'm inspired by this work and Camino, I want to ask, really, whether statelessness might be claimed as a means to think outside of and beyond the unforgiving strictures of nation states and the citizenship they can grant or remove. I want, uh, and beyond also the catastrophes that nation states um, cause and endure. Clearly, stateless people depend on nation states for legitimation and even of survival. And yet, I would not want to concede the possibility of at least imagining a space outside of the state and national belonging. And here, 
I want to envision not a mid-century idea of cosmopolitanism, but something else, something not yet spoken or thought. And uh, I want to come back to a, a definition of crisis that Rosemary evoked this morning by Antonio Gramsci, who says the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. And I want to try to see, to, to shift this and say maybe not just morbid symptoms, maybe a sense of between the dying old and the new that has not yet been born. Maybe there's something else that we can at least try to envision, perhaps together. So food statelessness, as evoked here, offer a different time frame than the progression toward preordained futures that often seem inevitable in the space-time of the nation-state. Can it op open a possibility of imagining alternative potential relationships between subjects and citizenships at home, and maybe also alternative temporalities of belonging? Can it gesture toward a future that will not be a repetition of the same? Art creates figures through which we as readers, listeners, or viewers can experience, even participate in the affect and textures of experiences such as statelessness, and at the same time imagine alternatives to, to its unforgiving present. I think that art practices can acknowledge the vulnerability and the violence of forced migration and exile, but it can also mobilize the creative power of a stateless imagination as an alternative to nationalist and ethnocentric imaginaries. And would you mind advancing that? So I'm going to look at another work, uh, Wangechi Mutu's The End of Caring All. And can you go to the next one? Thank you. Um, and that is also a video work. It's by uh, Kenyan US artist, Wangechi Mutu. And you'll see the relationship to Encamino. These are not artists that really know each other. It, this three-channel video was first exhibited in the 2015 Venice Biennale, and it performs even while re-envisioning the past as a burden to be carried by women, especially, and we see that in the other work as well, the, the uh, three of the figures are women. It's mythic, and at the same time, I think it's anti-monumental, like in Camino. It's a kind of feminist revision of the Sisyphus myth, read not as an abstract human condition here, but as a historically and politically marked and gendered one. Mutu doesn't refer only to Sisyphus, however, the Earth Mother in this work is also a kind of Cassandra who is cyclically predicts even as she enacts impending human and environmental catastrophe. And again, we can't see the whole work, uh, but we will see a little bit of it. So in this work, we see a woman, Mutu herself, slowly swaying forward while balancing this large basket on her head. The landscape evokes a savanna, rich in color, but it's getting more, it's getting darker and darker as we progress through the video. And on the soundtrack, which I can't play here, we hear strong winds of the plains, we hear birds that ominously fill this unnatural red sky um, that border on a kind of generic images of um, African landscapes. And as she progresses with ever greater difficulty, her basket gets filled with an increasing number of objects bicycle wheels, houses, a satellite dish, other electronic and household goods she collects along the way, and she's bending to pick more and more of them up. So this migration across three large screens recalls the myriad migrations across and beyond a continent that's shaped by globalized economies, by poverty, by war, and political upheaval. And this woman is ever more encumbered by the objects of globalization and consumption, whether produced acquired, recycled, or discarded as waste, objects that promise a future even as they destroy it. The whole world is in this basket, which lights up when it gets dark. And could you advance to like six minutes? And you, I wanna show you what happens at the end here. It, it lights up when it gets dark, but as the video progresses, it also becomes more and more impossible. No, um, six minutes on the video, thank you, uh, to bear. And when it becomes, impossible for her to carry any further. Um, the earth lights up in an eerie green. It's happening right here. It erupts and swallows her and all her disproportionate belongings, gurgling, glowing, heaving, as it ingests this unwelcome substance. And at this point in the video, we have reached the end of carrying all. The huge lava lump of lava-like matter rolls down the hill, and it's slowly absorbed. And then, of course, the journey begins again in an endless loop, linking the violence of the past to new disasters to come in a recursive sequence. So we're wondering, like, what erupts here? 
What is being refused? What is being ejected? What is being cleaned up? Mutu herself compares this planetary apocalypse to a bodily wound, and she says, we, the wound on the skin behaves similarly. Eventually it bursts open and all that festering stuff comes out and then it's back to normal. But you know, when things go, when the earth decides to clean up, it's not going to go, oh, you're the good ones, you're all right, you stay and they go. So here the female body carrying this weight parallels the space of the earth. Both are injured, both are in need of healing and renewal and the, a process that's stalled by the impossible burden of carrying it all. And I think this video performs the refusal and renewal of the earth. The work suggests that things will not, they cannot continue in the same way. I think that's what we see here. They must be ended, they must be reimagined, building, as in Kupferming, a new existence out of the shards and fragments of the old. And my last slide now. So the figures in these two works collect the fragments of migrant, stateless lives and weave them into stories that I think leave open the potentiality of rebirth and new beginnings, even as they powerfully recall the violence of the past and resist amnesia. So what can art do? Well, I think it depends on us. It depends on how we respond to work such as this one. If we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to their provocation, and also to the provocation of putting these two works next to each other, which um, you know, in a longer talk I would comp complicate. They come from such different um, contexts. I think they could enjoin us too to envision or try to imagine alternative histories, to imagine alternative potential temporalities that go beyond our present political reality that we've been analyzing so articulately tonight and also beyond our own horizons of possibility. Thank you. Okay, um, I'm Bruce Shapiro. Um, I'm gonna start with a, a confession. Um, the title, my working title of this talk is Journalism and the Politics of Resentment. Um, I was asked for a title a couple of months ago. I suggested that as a sort of abstract analytic subject that seemed a good way to capture a few things going on right now. Um, it's not that way anymore. I'm uh, speaking to you tonight as a journalist, um, three months after a grievance-filled gunman invaded a newsroom in Annapolis, Maryland, killing five local reporters and editors. Uh, and of course, two weeks after a columnist at the Washington Post, a Saudi citizen, was assassinated by a hit squad. I'm speaking as a journalism educator whose students in a few months will be going out in the world and are wondering about their own safety as professionals when they've been branded enemies of the people by the President of the United States, even as their classmates from Turkey, Ukraine, the Philippines, and elsewhere wonder whether they must decide whether to uh, risk their lives and freedom by going home to practice their profession. Um, and finally, I'm speaking as a secular American Jew one week after an obsessed uh, anti-Semitic a uh, gunman massacred 11 people at a synagogue in Pittsburgh in a neighborhood where friends of mine grew up and a city where my stepdaughter from time to time has lived and, and worked. Um, so I'm gonna do my best to be calm and analytic, um, but I'm not gonna pretend to be objective. I would also say to you that these are all related events and related phenomena, not in a direct conspiratorial way, I don't mean that at all, that would be to mirror the conspiracism that is driving so much of the politics of our time. But I would ask you to return, to think back to what now seems an impossibly long time ago, more than two years ago, August uh, 27th, 2015, uh, a press conference that then candidate Donald Trump held. Uh, at his orders, his security detail ejected a man named Jorge Ramos, 
who was a uh, correspondent for Univision, a journalist, and of course a Latino. This proved a prophetic event. This was the first time in the Trump campaign that violence was directly invoked at the then candidate's direction. This was the first time in the course of the Trump campaign that journalists were explicitly attacked. And of course, it proved a prophecy of what has now become an obsessive trope of American politics, the scapegoating of uh, Latino immigrants and migrants. Um, this dual scapegoating at once of immigrants but also of journalists is central to um, the authoritarian populism that we are seeing rise in the United States and around the world. Um, you know, authoritarians have never much liked journalists, but it is a little different now from other eras. Because of social media, authoritarians as well as oligarchs, as well as narcos, as well as terrorists, can all speak to their followers directly over the heads of news professionals, where in the past, in all kinds of conflicts and in all kinds of situations, all sides needed journalists if they wanted to tell their story. Now, for someone like the President of the United States, or someone like uh, Al-Qaeda, or someone like the narcos in Mexico, almost the only value of a journalist is in fact as a corpse or as a figure of derision, as a way of communicating terror and communicating resentment. Uh, to communicate what uh, in Gangs of New York, the, uh, the wonderfully evil thug Bill the Butcher calls the spectacle of fearsome acts. And the spectacle of fearsome acts enacted upon journalists, whether in the form of trolling or in the form of direct threats or in the form of assassination, marks our time. It's central. And I would urge you, as you pay attention to uh, questions about authoritarianism, questions of press freedom, to see this not as a sideshow, but a central marker. So point one. Point two. Um, We've been talking a lot about authoritarian, or a lot about populism tonight. I would just propose to you that as a reaction to concentrations of resources and power in the hands of elite groups, populism by itself is not necessarily anti-democratic and indeed has a little bit of a noble lineage. Um, what we are seeing tonight, what we are seeing this year, is something different, whether it's in Hungary or the US and the Philippines. It's authoritarian populism, in which a sense of, uh, a correct sense of resources and money being concentrated upwards are being harnessed with false narratives that actually cover the further concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a kind of transnational oligarch mafia, the likes of which we've never seen. Um, a couple points specifically about the US. What we are seeing now uh, in the US is not an entirely new phenomenon. While violence against journalists is a little bit new, the outbreak of violence we're seeing in the US needs to be understood historically as a continuation of right-wing vigilante violence that has been a part of American politics, as some of us were talking about this afternoon, um, from the end of the Civil War, and in particular has been a part of American politics from the heyday of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, when the homes of pastors like Martin Luther King, when churches and synagogues were routinely firebombed, when civil rights workers were assassinated uh, on the roads of Alabama. Um, this is not new, and it has periodically welled up in American politics. We saw it in the 1990s with right-wing militias and with the Oklahoma City bombing. We saw it with abortion clinic bombings in that same era, and indeed many, some of the same actors were involved. A man like Eric Rudolph was both an abortion clinic bomber and a bomber of internationalist and uh, events like the Olympics in, uh, in Atlanta. So this is not an entirely new phenomenon. It's a consistent 
thread in American life. What is different it is, is that it is being um, provoked, articulated, and given a certain amount of permission from the highest levels of our society. That's new, and when I speak of authoritarian populism, uh, that's really what I'm talking about. Finally, to zigzag back to journalism, in an American context, but also a European context, in a Filipino context, in others, I do think that there's a way out of the authoritarian moment we seem to be in. First of all, the way out is simply to remember. Uh, certainly in the US, we have overcome extraordinary periods of violence and resentment politics. We overcame segregation in my lifetime. Here in Ireland, in just the last couple of years, your politics changed so radically that you led the world with a marriage equality referendum and with repeal of the eighth to processes, not only results, but processes that have been enormously inspiring to us in the US and in other countries. I would also argue, though, that if we're trying to figure out a way out of the authoritarian moment that we're in, journalism itself is a big part of a solution. If journalists are a target, it's in part because journalism is a solution. Journalism can be, and is, it, we see it clearly in this moment as, a form of nonviolent activism a form of engaging and projecting forth democratic values, small d democratic values, of standing for accountability versus impunity, of standing for transparency in an era when wealth and power are ever more concentrated behind shell companies and offshore accounts, standing for the power of nonviolent debate in an era of violent rhetoric, um, and even for modeling a kind of discourse at a time when uh, political leaders and uh, partisan media are championing uh, a, a rhetoric of resentment. It is journalism with every story, even if it's about music or garlic, every good story is modeling a kind of inquiry, a kind of engagement, um, and a sense of narrative democratic responsibility that offers us a calm way out of a moment when there's real danger that frantic destruction of democracy will prevail. Thanks.